0: This is Salt and Spine.
1: Giving yourself authority to kind of interrogate what you are consuming is important. Who's making
2: decisions? Are there Black people? Are there people of color? Are there Indigenous people? I don't believe that you can tell any stories of any ethnicities truly without having someone on your team that can truly
3: understand those. It just comes down to being rooted in respect and seeing that someone's life and someone's perspective and someone's experience is just as valuable as your own.
4: I like to ask the question, why is everybody white? And then have folks kind of step back and see it because systemic racism, sexism, homophobia, these things are like dust. If you get close to it, you'll see it and it's everywhere all the time, but you have to raise people's awareness that the dust is there. And then once you see it, you can barely unsee it.
0: Hi there, I'm Brian Hogan Stewart, and you're listening to Salt and Spine. You're tuning in today for the third part of our four-part series, A Food Media Awakening, in which we're taking a deeper look at equity and representation in the cookbook and food media industries. In last week's episode, we talked all about cookbook publishing, speaking with authors, agents, and editors about how to build a more equitable industry. And today we're focusing our conversations on food media and non-cookbook publishing and asking ourselves the question, why is food media still so white? In today's show, we're talking with a number of journalists and editors about the challenges that face food media today, about what food coverage looks like when it's not led by white editors, and about what's on the horizon. You'll hear today from five voices from various corners of the food writing world, including James Beard Journalism Awards Chair Jamila Robinson, magazine editors Cherie Williams of Cuisine Noir, and Rochelle Oliver of Island and Spice, plus more from our recent conversation with food writer Osai Endolin. But first, we wanted to start with our conversation with Clancy Miller. Now, Clancy is a pastry chef, a food writer, and the author of the cookbook, Cooking Solo, The Fun of Cooking for Yourself. Her latest effort, though, is For the Culture, a new print food magazine that Clancy is launching to tell the stories of Black women in food and wine, all written, photographed, and illustrated by Black women. Clancy calls For the Culture, quote, the first magazine of its kind. And I asked her to share with us how the idea hatched and how the concept is coming together.
1: A few years ago, I was asked to guest edit an issue of a a Black issue, for a food magazine. At first, I found that intriguing. And I started reaching out to people to ask if they would be interested in being involved. And I started receiving some pitches. And I started meeting a lot of people through that process. And unfortunately, that issue of that magazine didn't happen. But I really enjoyed the preliminary process. And I was really moved by a lot of the people I met and the pitches and ideas that were sent to me. So I thought, um, I want to do this. I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I want to do sure. it. A friend of mine who I was talking about it with at the time said, you know, you should do it yourself. That kind of stayed with me. This was actually easily three years ago. The other general motivating factor is that I You know, I'm a black woman in food, and I don't see black women getting that much attention from mainstream media, despite the fact that black women, not just in this country, but in many countries, are kind of some of the original people to shape the cuisine. There's a need. I saw a need, and I wanted to create something that would meet that need. And also, I wanted to create a space where most stories would be welcomed. And in other words, sometimes I get frustrated by the pitching process having to kind of justify a story or justify writing about a place or a person. And yeah, I kind of wanted to create a space where it's like, okay, this is, we're putting the highlight on black women and food and wine and, you know, if you're going to write about black women and food and wine, I can't literally fit every single story in every single issue, but it's kind of like a wide open invitation that yeah. I personally would like to receive. <laughs> so those are three of the reasons.
0: And the concept as well is that not only are these stories about black women and food and wine, but basically that the entire editorial process is run by black women Black right. writers, black female illustrators, photographers. How important is that in that consideration? I mean, we talk about coverage of black women and food sort of generally, but often mm-hmm. that's in outlets that are not owned by black women and where black women are not necessarily in positions of power. So what does that mean to actually have black women in every facet of the the process?
1: Um I honestly it's there is an aspect of this that's an experiment because I haven't seen it before or experienced it before. And it's something I'm really curious to see um, as I'm putting the magazine together, seeing, okay, what are, what are the stories black women writers would like to tell? What are the recipes we would like to share and what, how does it change when the entire editorial process is, Comprised of Black women contributors. So um, I don't have the answer. The first issue will be the answer. I think so often, and it's not just, it's with several groups of people, with many people you see, oh, this person or these groups of people weren't a part of this process, and mistakes were made. I remember a story about a story in Gourmet, this was years ago. And I may mess up the details, but basically, I think it was a story that was featuring Korean food, but some of the colors that they used, and it was supposed to be celebratory, uh-huh. but some of the colors they used were apparently symbolic of death.
0: Uh-huh.
1: And again, I'm blanking on the total details, but they didn't have a Korean-American person or a Korean a person of, who has a Korean background as a part of the story. So their visual cues in executing that story were completely off. I think it actually matters who gets to put together images and stories and recipes when you're representing people and histories and stories. So hopefully... I'm not saying mistakes will not be made, but I I hope there will be, I don't know, some integrity and connection with stories that you might not have otherwise in mainstream media.
0: Yeah, it reminds me too this this topic of conversation of a conversation we had a while back with Carla Hall about cookbook publishers telling her like, your books are for Black people. Mm. Your your consumers are Black people. And I'm sort of wondering what the response to For the Culture has been, because I think that's a misconception in publishing, whether it's cookbook publishing or food media writ large, that content created by Black people is for Black people. Um, Can you talk about that a little bit?
1: In terms of for the culture another aspect about it that i hope will be achieved is not having to explain things to the reader so not assuming that the reader is a white person for example even Shout. though the magazine i hope will be enjoyed by everyone the premise of the magazine is very much by us for us all are welcome so oh. I hope that there will be very little kind of filtering involved in that, you know, everything is meant to be a story or a recipe or a profile or an interview without having to, without, you know, educational vocabulary to kind of hold the hand of the reader.
0: I asked Clancy about the lack of Black-owned and Black-led food media outlets, Her magazine, For the Culture, will launch soon. The only other Black-owned print food magazine in the U.S. is Whetstone, which debuted in 2017. The magazine's founder, Stephen Satterfield, was unavailable to join us for this episode. I asked Clancy if she thought the fact that just one, and soon to be two, Black-owned food magazines in print exist in the United States is shocking.
1: I don't know if it's shocking.
0: Uh
1: Uh-huh. It would be great if there were more. But in terms of food, yes, it's it's sparse. It's super sparse. It's also daunting. I also think we're kind of taught as media people to want to join mainstream media outlets. So Hmm. in a way, it makes sense to me, because it is also putting on the hat of becoming an entrepreneur which requires money, which requires, you know, a certain level of stamina in terms of figuring things out financially, before you even get to the editorial side of things. So part of me finds it shocking, part of me does not find it shocking
3: at all.
0: Yeah, yeah, I, I hear that. Has your focus on For the Culture or sort of the work that you're doing to launch shifted at all as sort of the national conversation has become more centered on the movement for black rights and centering black voices?
1: Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. I almost cut you off because it's just like a (laughs) resounding yes. Uh
0: (laughs) Yeah. Can Um, you, can you talk about how that's changed?
1: Sure. So, all right. So I launched a crowdfunding campaign for, for the culture in December Mm -hmm. And it went from December to February. It ended at the beginning of February. The goal was to raise $40,000 to print the first issue on Indiegogo. We raised $38,000. And then fortunately over the course of like 48 hours following the close of that crowdfunder, people like far and wide, like Vinmo'd me money. So the goal was reached. I was really psyched and you know, kind of was thinking the first, the theme of the first issue was going to be it's personal, the idea of telling your story or telling maybe your role model story, or maybe even somebody who you've never met, like an Edna Lewis or a B. Smith, et cetera. Sure. These stories are personal, I think, in the fact that we don't see ourselves sometimes feels personal. So that was going to be the first theme of for the culture. Then the pandemic hit Mm, um, in March. And at first I thought I didn't really think of changing course at all. But then as soon as the data started coming out, showing that black and brown people are being disproportionately affected by COVID-19, I thought, okay, there's, there are several stories here. And then also, of course, I think within the first few weeks of the pandemic, we saw the terrible, terrible, terrible toll that it's taking on people who work in the food industry. So I thought, okay, there needs to be a section in the magazine. I don't want the entire first issue to be devoted to COVID-19, but there clearly in my mind, I thought there has to be some coverage related to it. So I put out the call for submissions, again, asking for... COVID-19 related stories in terms of how the pandemic has affected people's work lives, their businesses, et cetera. Specifically, you know, how has COVID-19 affected Black women in food and wine? So that has been an area of shifting course. And then, of course, we've had the uprising. So that is also something that I want to include a little bit of in the first issue. So I'm hoping... Nothing else incredibly gigantic happens before the first issue goes out. But those are kind of two examples of how I decided to change course a little bit in terms of opening up to more stories related to what's happening, what's
0: unfolding. I also asked Clancy about how consumers of food media can help push the industry in a more equitable direction.
1: I think it's important for all of us to ask questions a lot So I grew up being a fan of a lot of mainstream media outlets, but I think it's good to ask the question, who's making decisions? You know, who are the Uh editors here? Who are the people in the highest decision making roles? Are there black people? Are there people of color? Are there indigenous people in those roles? are people being paid? Well, like these are questions you can engage with people on social media. So these are questions you can ask. I also think it's important to look at stories and ask who's writing the story. And, you know, just you don't have to just take what's given to you. So I think having the power, giving yourself authority to kind of interrogate what you are consuming is important. It's also important to support magazines like Whetstone, get a subscription for the culture. Eventually there will be, as soon as the magazine comes out, there will be a subscription option on the website. I think to vary vary your media consumption is really important and to ask questions, whether you're asking them to yourself or you're taking it one step further and asking people who are editors at various places just realizing that especially legacy outlets there there are hierarchies and it's important to know who is a part of the hierarchy and who's making decisions because that has to that plays a large role in what you end up consuming
0: That's Clancy Miller, founder of the forthcoming food magazine For the Culture. The magazine will, quote, highlight what black women are doing in food and beverages now, as well as honoring the women on whose shoulders we stand. You can donate to For the Culture and ensure you don't miss the first issue at ForTheCultureFoodMag.com. If you listened to last week's show on creating a more equitable cookbook industry, you'll remember that we talked with food writer Osai Endolin. We're sharing more of our conversation with Osai, the parts on food media today. And don't go anywhere. After you hear from Osai, we'll be back with three more guests on the importance of non-white-led food media. I asked Osai about what difference it makes to have food outlets like For the Culture and like Whetstone Magazine, to name two print publications, that are owned and run by black people.
5: I think what's so cool about what Clancy and Stephen are doing is that they really get to kind of divine their own path and and not be accountable to anyone but the audience that they are trying to serve and to themselves. And that alone, I think, leaves a lot of room to create and and iterate and, and experiment. Honestly, um, I think a lot about when folks from larger companies say stuff like, "Well." We tried that and that didn't work. And, you know, so on. But then you have to ask all these questions like, well, did you deploy it to the right audience? Did you promote it in the way that that audience would have responded to it? In other words, like, if you're trying to fit a particular approach inside a system that was always built for something else, it's probably not going to return, um, the kind of response that that you're anticipating, especially because we get expected to perform leaps and bounds beyond um, white folks a lot of the time.
0: Osai shared her take on where food media might go from here.
5: Giving uh, space and power and opportunity to Black people, to people of color, is tantamount. I'm very practical, but I like to lean optimistic. But there needs to be uh, demonstrated action alongside the hope and the wishing, and <laughs> you know yeah. what's that song like <laughs> just, you know, Like you, you, gotta yeah. like you gotta have some. You gotta you know you gotta have some things ready to deploy. And if you don't have the ability to do that in a way that does not continue more harm, then you gotta get people on your team who can who can bring that expertise. And it's gonna require you know again like being open to it's a new day right it's a new day and right now i think almost uh you know literally figuratively cosmically we're kind of cracked open right now and i feel like we're not quite done with that yet i think this year has a lot more to to hand us we can't ask the hard questions around the conference table now when are you going to do it when are you going to do it so you know on all sides. I think we all need to be demanding more. You know, we're at at a moment now where I think we can really galvanize the whole sphere and say, listen, we don't have to, I I don't think we have to throw it all out. But if it's worth saving, then we really got to like, represent and show up for each other and really do it in a holistic way, and a healthy way. In a, in, a, in a fair way, in a transparent way. And if we can't do that, then I don't know. I might be the one to like the match. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs>
0: yeah. That's food writer Osai Endelin. You can hear more of our conversation with her on last week's episode on building a more equitable cookbook industry. Her forthcoming book explores systemic racism in the food world through the lens of America's restaurant culture. We also called up Cherie Williams, the publisher and editor of Cuisine Noir. Cherie was working in public relations and communications when she first met Chef Richard Pennell, who had created a small print insert with coverage of black chefs titled Black Cuisine in the 1990s. After some collaboration and planning, Cherie took over the concept in 2007, and the following year she launched the now-titled Cuisine Noir, a digital magazine that covers food, wine, and travel connected to the African diaspora.
2: At that time, I said I wanted to rebrand it to be not just food, but also wine and travel and make it a lifestyle because that's sort of one. You know, uh, we knew all of the black winemakers that are here and, and the conversations were not being had around those stories and then travel. You know, someone who loves to travel. When you travel, it's like, what's the food? Or you travel to the destination because of the food. And then definitely five years ago, I wanted to make sure I sort of changed the tagline to say that we're connecting the African diaspora through food, wine, and travel. So just everywhere we go around the world, wherever there's someone of African descent, those are the stories that we want to tell. It's about telling the stories, but also preserving that food history for generations to come.
0: So you, you've been doing this work at Cuisine Noir for some time now, the publication has existed for even longer. Can you sort of paint a picture for us that how has the industry shifted in terms of I mean, it was sort of born out of a feeling that there was not representation of black voices in food media is my understanding has that do you think we're in a different place today? And if so, like how so and how much more work is needed there?
2: It was really, um, in terms of the voices, it was the narratives were not being told. And, and so when you were talking, you know, there's the articles that would come out to say, where are the black chefs? And I'd be like, what do you mean? And, you know, black chefs have been around forever. Since slavery, what are you talking about? Where are the Black chefs? And then when you started seeing the prominent brands or sponsorships or whatever the case may be, you weren't seeing Black black and brown faces connected to those. So, you know, there was that whole thing, too, of you've heard of it, food appropriation, cultural appropriation. Uh, We've seen that with fried chicken, the negative connotations around watermelon and stuff like that. So there were just narratives that were not being told that needed to be told. And that's where Cuisine Noir was birthed out of. We're seeing more today than we did when we definitely first started, especially around the wine piece and blacks and wine. Um, Because really, when we had started in 2009, we were really some of the first that were really digging into those wine stores. So you're definitely seeing more definitely these days. What you're not seeing in food media is you're seeing the people who are te- who are assigning and in charge of those stories. That's where the work still needs to be done.
0: Yeah, who holds the power, who makes the editorial decisions. Absolutely. Yeah, and I think that's something that's that's really an important piece of this episode, I think. And so I'm curious if you can sort of talk about how having publications like Cuisine Noir or some of the other outlets that we're talking to that do have people of color and particularly Black people making the editorial decisions. How does that affect the ultimate product, the content? What does that mean for consumers?
2: Right. I think it means authenticity because we're coming from a an a- authentic voice uh, and we're t- coming from lived experiences, right? So when someone is saying, I grew up in the kitchen with my grandmother doing this, whatever, So many of us can relate to doing that. You know what I mean? Culturally, whatever the case may be, we're able to tell authentic stories because a lot of the times, even when I'm reading stories from what my writers have written, I'm like oh I can remember that or you know or different things and so there's that cultural experience that we're able to bring to the table and I think that that is just great and we're sharing history and we're sharing culture and and I want to say too we're we're no different than any other culture and the standpoint is If you're reading about Italian grandmothers or Italian cooking or Filipino cooking or whatever, everyone, I truly believe that when you have that lived experience and you are of that culture and that community, you're able to really express the love and and, and everything that goes through it. And that's just what we're bringing in terms of Black culture. I don't believe that you can tell any stories of any ethnicities truly without having someone on your team that can truly understand those. You know, the editors may be white, but try to look at this in terms of, you wouldn't want me to tell your story. And I've never had a, 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 you know, I haven't lived as a white person. So why would you want to tell a black story or another story and not be, you know, and not have that true voice come through? And so I would really hope that newsrooms editorial rooms really understand that. And that comes from the editor down because I think it's just so important. It really is. And they have to think like that.
0: I also talked with Cherie about how the current moment we're in, the fight for Black rights finally reaching a tipping point in the broad national conversation, and the swell of Black-focused content following the killing of George Floyd. To many consumers, the sudden attention to the Black Lives Matter movement and Black-owned businesses felt performative and was lacking in any strong history of elevating Black chefs or creators before.
2: When all this came down and you were seeing all of the publications. Now they're coming out what was called performative list, right? Um, in the sense of um, Black-owned wine brands and Black-owned brand, whatever the case may be, that they had right. never done that before. I was at a point, I was like, oh my God, what do I do? Do I need to jump in this? Do I? And then I said, you know what? I've been doing this. I've been doing yeah. this. Not, and so I'm not changing what I'm doing. I'm going to enhance. And I'm going to continue to tell these stories. But for the most part, I am, I, what is going on? I have been doing. We've always tried to champion issues that have been going on in the food space, in the beverage space, in the travel space. And so when I had to take a step back and say, you know what? You're doing this already. Just, you know, keep just now just amplify it more. And so that's uh-huh. the conclusion that I came to for
0: myself. What did that feel like? Was that, was that frustrating? Like to, to feel like I've been doing this work day in and day out for years and Mm. like, and now there's an attention to it, but like, where has that attention been or or why, why have I not been getting the credit for doing that work? Right.
2: Um, It was frustrating and it was, and there was an opportunity um, that I did reach out to a few just to say, you know, would love to collaborate on telling these stories, because obviously we don't have the, the influence because you, that you have or the financial resources that you have. But here I am, um, if you haven't heard of me, and how can we move forward in telling these stories together?
0: I asked Sheree if she felt like this could be a pivotal moment for many brands, media outlets, and organizations, if there might actually be a shift in terms of coverage.
2: We'll see how long it lasts. One of the questions out there as well is how long will this last? Is this just a moment? Or will you, if you have noted that your editorial room is too white, then I would love to see what you're doing and how that is going to, to change to be a long-lasting, sustainable company culture move. So the changes that I would like to see is when it comes to brands and the people who are making the decisions of where those advertising and sponsorship dollars go to pay attention to more of us Black-owned media entities. That is the biggest impact because those dollars, a lot of those dollars are not coming to us. And so therefore it really makes it, we have to get really creative how we continue to tell our stories because they are very important to tell. And it's not just, you know, so there's a couple of things there's, uh, and it could be a double-edged sword that we're we're Black and we're niche, right? But also we know that even smaller publications are fighting to get more advertising dollars where you have, if you want to be specific to reach Black consumers and you have a publication that does that, then why would, can can you at least give some type of day? But I would really like to see that whole model change because it's what's your cost per thousand and and da, 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 and you know and sometimes quantity you know all the publications are quality so I'm not saying that they're not so they're all quality out there but we're quality too we just don't have the numbers but we don't have the years of experience either If food and wine and essence and all they're like 40 50 years on us so of course you're reaching almost a million subscribers you know i'd be surprised if they weren't so Definitely from that piece of the puzzle, I would like to see more of those fund- that look at that funding allocation differently and give give us a chance.
0: That's Cherie Williams, publisher and editor of Cuisine Noir. You can find all of their content on CuisineNoirMag.com and on social media. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back with more conversations on the importance of investing in non white owned food media, including some analysis and closing thoughts from James Beard Journalism Chair Jamila Robinson. But first, our next guest, Rochelle Oliver. Rochelle is the editor and founder of Island and Spice, a digital magazine covering food culture of the Caribbean. Formerly a New York Times editor, Rochelle launched Island and Spice in 2018. I called up Rochelle to talk about the mission of Island and Spice, their editorial process, and some of the coverage that we've seen from her magazine.
3: So Island and Spice, what we do is we're a quarterly publication. And so every issue, we attack a theme and center all of our content around a theme. And so how we come up with those themes is usually just a lot of conversations and so speaking with chefs around the world, and and seeing what is interesting to them. What are they talking about? Also, speaking with a lot of researchers who are based in the Caribbean, food researchers, or they're based in the Caribbean, or they focus on ingredients that cross over with the within the Caribbean diaspora. And once we find. Uh, something that is being repeated over and over again, or we hear about frustrations, like no one's talking to me about, you know, guava, or no one's talking Uh about this. And so once we hear something being repeated, it actually, it starts pulling out our ear and saying, okay, should this be the theme? What can we say about this? And really trying to kind of embody like a moment, sort of global consciousness, I guess, of like we're, are we at in the evolution of caribbean food in this country
0: i asked rochelle if she could talk about a recent issue all centered on guava and in particular the pink variety one that is native to north america but has become increasingly imported rochelle explained how their editorial process allows them to follow the lead of the story idea instead of coming into an issue with pre-cooked ideas for how the coverage will play out
3: going into the summer It was one of my attempts to say, okay, I'm going to say what I want to say. Like, we're going to just talk about sweet treats in the summer. We're going to focus at, you know, the issue in Miami. And so initially it was just this sort of very vibrant Miami pop pinks and candy colors. And so we started, I started speaking with a lot of chefs around the Miami area looking for what are they doing different in the sweet treats world? (laughs) And no matter what anyone was talking about, whether it was chocolate cake or um, cheesecake, everything had guava in it. And I'm like, come on, stop talking to me about guavas. I can't do the whole issue about everyone's desserts with guava. You know? But then I remembered what our mission was. And I said, wait, wait, let us let me talk to folks. Go back and start talking to people and be like, hey, let's talk about guavas again. Um, where are you getting your guavas from? and that is what really opened it up to an amazing story about guavas, which um, we found that you know guavas were disappearing, like homegrown guavas that people in South Florida and the Caribbean had grown up with, was no longer on store shelves, and it was largely made up of mixtures of guavas coming from other parts in the world, including India, and you know even Mexico is a part of the Caribbean, but. And they weren't even pink guavas that everyone grew up with. They were actually dyed at the factories and to make it look like pink. So I think a story that something that we didn't know was happening and it was happening underneath our our noses and our culture was sort of disappearing. And that's crazy to think that you're actually embodying your, your food still and putting it in everything that you make, but then actually realizing that. Nope, this isn't even your pink guava. It's been being dyed to look pink. This is coming from everywhere else and kind of being tricked to believe that this is yours when it's not. And so we went all in on that issue and found an amazing team to to tackle it. And also speak with a lot of new entrepreneurs out there who are opening restaurants and really trying to make something great and new with guava, which was awesome. I think it was important to shine a light on These moments as if they giving them the attention that they are American moments instead of minimizing it to this sort of like immigrant moment. But it was an American moment. And and in the guava story, it was really about bringing farmers and chefs who are sharing their their cultures with the world and shipping guavas out around the world and positioning the story editorially that shows that this isn't just an immigrant experience. This is an American experience. This is an experience for they're making food for the world to enjoy. And so that is editorially like that's our also our goal is to present the voices in a way so that people realize that we all have access to these stories and that we are all allowed to present these stories with the same weight and the same quality and attention that is given to all the other American food stories that we share.
0: Yeah, I think that's so important that, that you talk about um, giving voice to these people's stories with respect. You also um, have written that you know part of your mission is, or that Island and Spice rather, is an example of what equity and action looks like when people of color can take ownership of their food narratives. And obviously that, that isn't always the case in every story that a writer might work on, that you have a personal sort of connection to that.
3: You don't have to be in it to relate to somebody. You you grow up, you get old and you die. Like that, we all follow the same arc if we're fortunate enough, you know, and, sure. and, and every kid who comes home from school wants a snack, you know, so it doesn't matter what they eat. I think that what is sometimes and somehow missing from the conversations these days when we're so busy on looking at what's how we're different is looking at how we're the same the goal when we speak to people who are not from our upbringing, who didn't, they didn't get raised in the same household as us is seeing that we have more things in common than we have dissimilar, right? We're, so asking someone about guavas, I mean, or what you grew up with. I remember, I remember when Frank Martinez, the owner of AR produce, he was telling this story of climbing the guava trees uh, in Cuba and how he would um, snack on them. And then someone else I spoke to who runs um, the Miami Botanical Garden was talking about how she would climb the trees and snack on the guavas like donuts, you know? And I love that part. I didn't grab, I wasn't, I, I loved climbing trees and I fell out of many trees growing up. And so I didn't share that experience. My family's Jamaican and I was born in Greece. You know, my story is very different than everyone else's story I interview, but as a human being, I can connect to, I can relate to moments that you had. I can relate to them and I can give them as much respect as I give my own moments. And so really it just comes down to being rooted in respect and you know, and seeing that someone's life and someone's perspective and someone's experience is just as valuable as your own. And if we approach our content that way. We'll always get
0: it right. Rochelle and I talked about another one of their issues, the rum issue, and how that showcased Island and Spice's ability to focus their content on topics that aren't being covered by, quote, mainstream food media.
3: We wanted to dive in and look at what's happening new with rum. And so we found that a lot of chefs were actually cooking with rum. But then when I started looking at you know, recipes and like allrecipes.com, NYT cooking, you know, website and Bon Appetit, Food 52. I was looking at all of these uh, websites and saying, you know, how many of these recipes include rum? And (laughs) very few of them did. And so I was really surprised. So, you know, we, we start talking about, I think the letter from the editor talks about why this could be, and so talking to Nina Compton, who's an award-winning chef, about how she brings her culture forward through rum in New Orleans, which is like the northernmost Caribbean city, folks say, was a great opportunity, I think, to show at that elite level how, how chefs are doing it. And she was great because she talks about throwing, you know, sort of like brandy and the wines out, right? And instead of replacing it with her St. Lucian rums. And it was like something that she just did quite naturally. And it was just really true to her story. I think the, the benefit of coming in with that that sort of narrow focus, and we're going to cover rum, is that it really allows us to see a level of authenticity in a way that is just true to the chef's story. I think it's like as a writer, it's like well, writing in your voice. As a chef, it's like, what sort of unique twist are you bringing to the table that is just so yours? It's your experience. And I think um, looking at Nina Compton and bringing that rum about, and kind of weaving that story about at the end of the night and how she had the, the the rum, you know, and and a moment of of peace, you know, and just enjoying and taking in all the success with a glass of rum and a little coconut water
0: and a little coconut, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Rochelle mentions St. Lucian chef Nina Compton, who has earned lots of coverage for her restaurants Compare Le Pan and Bywater American Bistro in New Orleans. Nina was a competitor on Top Chef and also won the James Beard Award for Best Chef South. Food and Wine Magazine named her a Best New Chef and Eater called her restaurant Compare Le Pan one of America's best. There has been no shortage of coverage, but the fact that Nina was throwing out the standard European ingredients and techniques, like using brandy or wine, wasn't part of most stories. I asked Rochelle about that.
3: I don't know why, and no one else covered that story. I don't know. I can assume, but I don't know. But um, I can tell you that when I look at all the food food websites out there, and you Google rum, or rum as as a part of an ingredient, rum as a liquid spice, you don't see that story. So that, that story has been missed, not just in the last decade, talking about like missed since like the 1500s. Like like this, this is something that has been missed year after year,
5: <laughs> Yeah,
3: but it's being used and no one's talking about it. And so that's the goal of Island and Spice is to bring something new to the forefront, bring something refreshing and giving people, giving chefs and people within the Caribbean diaspora a chance to be seen and heard in a way that they hadn't before. And so having that in this narrow focus and this narrow like this very specific mission of trying to tell stories that is like new and going beyond the stereotypes of jerk chicken and roti, though I love both, you know, but, but really being very intentional about wanting to say something new, different, or refreshing is really like a central to our editorial process.
0: That's Rochelle Oliver, founder and editor of Island and Spice. You can find Island and Spice content, including the pieces we discussed from their guava and rum issues, on islandandspice.com. We called up our last guest today to reflect on the food media industry more broadly. You're about to hear from Jamila Robinson, who, in addition to her job as the food editor for the Philadelphia Inquirer, also chairs the James Beard Foundation's Journalism Awards program. Jamila told me that she fell into food media almost by chance. She was working in journalism, and the food section was one of several she worked on and ultimately found it was the one that moved her the most. I asked Jamila about what role food media plays, and how she's thought about her work as one of the few Black women to have led food sections at major U.S. daily newspapers.
4: I love food stories so much because they are always about some other thing, whether they're about immigration, or they're about food insecurity, or if it's about the environment. And so I was always interested in how this intersection of lifestyle and entertainment also was this economic driver that people really didn't talk about its huge economic impact. And I was always very interested in that. One of the things that I've thought a lot about over the last decade has been if food is an art form we all participate in, how do we be sure that everybody is participating in it? Because even I, even as a food editor, you know, would go to restaurants and, you know, and, you know, people would sit, sit me in the back <laughs> um, and, um, or, or treat me like I wasn't supposed to be there or try to, you know, offer me the <laughs> And so I've always been very interested in how do we break down the on high idea of like Food criticism, food writing, always from a lens of I'm up above you as opposed to I'm with you at the table because we're all participating in that. And it's it's something that I've tried to carry through in every role that I've had.
0: Jamila and I also talked about the moment that we're in, this what we're calling food media awakening, from the public rooting out of bad actors at Bon Appetit magazine and other food outlets, to the systems that have prevented people of color, and namely Black folks, from being treated fairly. We talked about representation in the food media industry at large.
4: Food content is a way for media organizations to build audience and community. We know that there is a distance. We're seeing this now with the reckoning.
5: Mm-hmm.
4: Like, I'm like, I keep saying I'm going to stop using that word. I know. Like, I'm doing air quotes for folks <laughs> who are listening. Um, the reckoning that's happening. But what it really shows us is the need to be able to build across communities. And, and the easy for me, the most vital way to do that is to start with food. That's always been the way that I've been able to get the best stories out of people So that's something that media organizations I really believe could do. But it's the way that our structure and our systems have been built has been about there's somebody telling you what to eat, when to eat it, where to eat it, as opposed to inviting the community in to tell you why. That Middle Eastern stand, that shawarma is the best thing you've ever tasted. And if it's oozing with tzatziki and the pickles are just sharp enough, and as soon as it just, as soon as like the tzatziki drips onto your shirt, you know that you're back in Detroit.
0: I'm... Curious for your perspective, I know we talked with Tony Tipton Martin a while back about how she was the first Black woman to hold a food editor job at a major newspaper in the 90s. You've obviously held that position at a couple newspapers now. What impact do you think it has on the actual coverage, on the content to have a team that isn't led by exclusively white people or or also in some cases that, you know, the publication itself is not even owned by white folks. You know, we talked with Clancy Miller about her forthcoming magazine. There's, you know, Whetstone with Stephen Satterfield. So when the power is actually not in the hands of white folks, how does that change the coverage and the actual content?
4: Well, I can give you a couple of examples. There's a pressure test that I think that I bring to coverage. How we talk about restaurants, how we talk about people changes completely. I mean, the words that make the hair on my neck stand up may not make a white woman's neck stand up. I always like to use this this example of the word ethnic. I mean, that's always a good one. It's, it's a, well, what do you mean? And I'm probably the person, I'm going to be the person who asks, well, what do you mean by that? I'm not going to tell you that it's wrong if you're my reporter, but I might ask you, well, what, what do you mean by that? Can you be more specific? And that's something because that has been the system and that has been the way that writers have written about people there's no way to step back and say well what it, what is it that i mean when i when i use these words even when we say words like the community the latino community what do, well, what do you mean by that do you mean mexico do you mean ecuador do you mean salvador do you mean brazilians who aren't necessarily, (laughs) they're they're South American, they might have, they have completely different ethnicities. So how do we start to think about not only race, but also gender? One thing I, I, you know, I think a lot about, I, I had a story just the other day, where a reporter talked to eight men. And I just, and I just put numbers in the story, one, two, and got down to eight and said, I just need to, I need to ask you why you only talk to men for this story. And the thing is, is being, I'm I'm coming from, I'm black. I'm a woman. I'm from the Midwest. My sensibilities are going to be completely different from a woman who is Middle Eastern, maybe race in the South. So we bring our backgrounds. And because I'm a woman, and because I'm, um, because I'm black, I'm thinking about how people of color are going to receive that information and that's something that i think when we have systems that are conceived in whiteness it's just something w- that folks don't think about and and being able to just raise the awareness of of something that they may not even be thinking about like okay well why are why are all the hands in your magazine why are all the hands white explain that to me why are okay i you you i have to write an rfp for a branded content proposal so that means that you have to have a lot of things that are like mobile devices, like you'll see mockups of mobile devices and mockups of of websites. And all the people are white, all the hands are white. And so I like to ask the question, why is everybody white? And then have folks kind of step back and see it because systemic racism, sexism, homophobia, these things are like dust. And if you're if you're I think Baldwin said that. If you get close to it, you'll see it and it's everywhere all the time, but you have to raise people awareness that the dust is there. And then once you see it, you can barely unsee it. And it exposes the ways that we uphold these systems. But we can only do that if we're willing to raise folks' awareness and make sure that they're thinking about the things that may not affect them. Are we thinking about like, even when we quote people, Something I caught the other day, someone was, was talking about undocumented workers in restaurants. And it was a white man who was saying, oh, my God, this is so bad. And it's like, well, well, whoa, wait a minute. Before we give him this platform to say this quote, we need to ask, is he the best person to be talking about undocumented people in restaurants when he's prob- when he may be someone who actually exploits those people? It's just a question, and I'm going to bring different questions to the table than other people are, just because of my background, my experience, um, how people treat me in restaurants. I see things completely different from a critical standpoint. I see how ways that we don't allow students and interns to learn, to develop a critical voice because we conceive the idea of a criti- of a critic is cloaked in whiteness. And maleness, cisgendered maleness as well. So, how do we think about making sure people have opportunities to challenge and raise their and change their critical voices to develop a critical voice? But we can only do that by raising the awareness of the system that we're in.
0: Jamila and I also talked about the state of the world. COVID has, from a health perspective, disproportionately impacted people of color. It's pulled the rug from underneath restaurants and their staffs. Many restaurants have shuttered permanently. Hospitality workers, including many undocumented people, have lost their incomes overnight. The media industry is facing challenges, too, with widespread furloughs, layoffs, and budget cuts. Jamila reflected on what we're learning in the midst of this pandemic.
4: I think... COVID has shown us, we are in a moment where we can have radical change. And now I think I'm coming with not only my staff, but other people that I work with across the industry is challenging their imagination. What's the biggest thing we can do with this opportunity? What's the most radical change that we can have? How can we be more imaginative in this moment? Let's not just think about ways that We can change our coverage and we can bring, we can talk to marginalized communities. We're going to talk to undocumented. We're going to talk to immigrants. We're going to actually finally talk to some Black people who've been here um, since the founding or since before the founding of the Republic. Instead of like doing that, let's reimagine a world where they are all there automatically and we don't have to bring them in but we are all there and what does that look like? And so it's like, I think I'm bringing really big thinking um, and a change in, not only a change in the status quo, but also a change in sensibility, a change in imagination, a change in tone. My sensibility is just different. Like I don't do drama. Like I'm very calm. I'm extraordinarily patient. And so the idea of settling into the bad boy chef the toxic environment, because you think, oh, those are cool people I want to hang out with. Well, I mean, those are people who would not hang out with me. Like, I'm probably not going to be at their parties or like they, they would come to my, they could, they would invite me to a party, but like may not talk to me. So I don't exist in a world where like, I'm worried about that. One of the things I say to my staff all the time is that we have to constantly remember that food media is a community. And our charge as journalists, I think, is to challenge ourselves to write about people who don't live in, the, in our communities. And food is a community. So how do we get outside of our own world, our own sphere, our own cities, our own social and cultural pockets? How do we step out of that and be more, um, be more open to how other people live?
0: I asked Jamila a question that keeps coming up in these where do we go from here conversations on food media. Will the food publishing, food media industry be able to change until there's a change in power? A change in who owns the publications, who makes the editorial calls, who controls the narrative?
4: Absolutely, but I also think it's a question that we have to ask white people. Like what is it gonna take? How can you imagine a world or a food media industry or a landscape with no racism? So be imaginative. What does that look like? Teams across the country are all white. So first of all, you have to acknowledge the whiteness is a thing. And then what are some ways to do that? Well, that might mean stepping aside, that might mean it it can't, it has to be in leadership roles. Um, One thing a lot of people have heard me ask is, do people need to be in these roles for decades? Do you need to be a food critic for 30 years in the same city? It's a question. Is it as tastes change, as people change, as demographics change? So asking, can people step aside? Do you need to, you need to have an all-white investigations team in a city? I'm talking, about L- I'm talking to you, L.A. L.A. that is 40% Latino, but you have an all-white investigations team at the L.A. Times. Well, do you add to that team or do you ask some people to change roles? Right. Um so it's not a matter of people losing their jobs but are you doing that job? So I think that we, I mean and I think in all across every sector of food media whether that is broadcast whether that is books if it's journalism we have to ask people do we need to have time limits and term limits around some of these roles? The James Beer Foundation Journalism Committee, we are term limited because we think it's really important for us not to concentrate power in one person. I will be the chair for three years. But I think it, it really is important to pass that baton, pass that mic. Succession planning should be a goal of everyone in every institution. How can you imagine your role if you're not there? I mean, we think about this, I think about this in journalism all the time. If I fall down the stairs, my sections are going to go on. The Philadelphia Inquirer is going to publish whether yeah. I'm there or not. So the idea that we concentrate power in one role and thinking that is the only person who can tell you about food, or that's the only person who can tell you about wine, or that's the only person who can tell you about, the, about me too in the restaurant industry. Actually, if you stop and think about it, it makes absolutely no sense. And I think it also creates, if you don't think about how to bring more people in, and even if that means you see power, then think about everything you lose by not having more people who you can talk to. You know, being a well-rounded person is being able to have the self-awareness to say, you know, oh my gosh, you know, I looked around, I only have one Asian friend. Why is that? (laughs) I looked around and I don't, you know, I, oh gosh, I, you know, I should, I should speak more Spanish or I like one day I woke up, I grew up in, I grew up in the Detroit area, but I don't speak Arabic. I like all the food (laughs) and I know all the food words, but I don't speak Arabic and I should. So being able to think about how we concentrate power, how we concentrate and even when we're people of color, how we concentrate whiteness and how we project it. So if we can get people to, be more aware of that and think about, well, what is your succession plan? What is your succession plan for for your media organization, for yourself, because even you should want to have to move up and move on and, and do some other things.
0: Sure. Um, and here comes a loaded question. Are are you optimistic? Like, do you have hope that, I mean, we use this word reckoning, right? We're, we're also calling this series like a food media awakening because yeah. I didn't want to say reckoning either. Um, yeah, that. like whatever we want to call this moment. Yeah. Do you feel hopeful that there actually will be meaningful change?
4: I have to be. I have to be, I am actually, I am optimistic, because we're talking about it. That's like the first thing Like once you get, if you can get people to talk about it, then you can start to get people to be more vulnerable. And you can start the, the important thing is, if we can talk about it in a tone that allows people to be aware, and allows them to figure out how to make corrections without creating more harm. So I, I think in there's a lot of cases where we're like, oh, let's like, oh, let's like, oh this 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 organization that has had these problems, let's just put a black face on it and it'll be fine. And that's not what needs to be done. Sometimes you just need to say, I can't fix the past. I can fix the now by acknowledging, oh yeah, maybe we didn't do that right. But here we're gonna learn these things and we're gonna try to imagine a world where we can be better. So I have to be optimistic. Um I I think some of that, and I'm guessing really some of that really is going to come from people being willing to check their egos at the door. Yeah. Um, Set aside the, the propensity to be petty and gossipy, breaking the cycle, breaking the chains of the things that we've done only because that's the only way we've been taught to do them. to me shows a lack of imagination. Like optimism is attached to imagination for me. So I can see a world where all of these organizations are better because people want to be and then because they want to understand how food moves through other people's lives and how connected we all are and how interesting a food story can be no matter what lens you take from it. If you want to spend all of your energy talking about how bad things used to be, you're, you're not going to get anywhere. Like to me, it's like food is like a, uh, like life and the industry is kind of like a tomato plant. And in order for it to flourish, you have to prune it from the bottom. When you start to see aphids or any like little dark spots or anything or yellow, it starts to yellow. You just have to start to clip that. And clip it away and it will start to flourish and you'll actually get more fruit because if you're draining, you're sitting all of your energy on the bad stuff, you're not going to get any fruit out of it. And I really think our industry can be like that. Like, okay, we know that it's a problem. We know that we have overwatered this plant this week. (laughs) So, Okay. So now I'm just actually going to pay more attention to what I think needs to be done. And so I'm extraordinarily optimistic. I mean, I, I really do look across the industry and even some of the organizations that have had problems, my own organization being one, the Philadelphia Inquirer, issues at Bon Appetit and Food 52, and you name it. I mean, like, you know, the New York Times, everybody has, is dealing with this right now. And so, you know, the one, it tells you that the grass is never green, it's brown everywhere. But how you choose to go forward is most important, I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about how awful some behavior might be. I want to clip that out, toss it in the compost heap (laughs) and move on to the next thing because there's so much work to be done and so many stories to be told and so many ways that we can flourish as an industry. I'm not a low-hanging fruit kind of person. I'm, I'm like, okay, yeah, you know, we need to just like dig all of that out and start something new. And we are going to pay more attention and we're going to give it the, the care and energy and fertilizer and growth and all of the, the things, more sun. What we're dealing with right now is sunlight. Yeah. Um, and, and like, okay, we're, we're now we're giving it more sun. Now we need to give it more water. We need to clip the things that aren't serving us well. The food community has so many like, interesting, wonderful smart people. And I have thought about this moment as a moment for alignment and a moment for um, that allyship is the wrong word. It's more of collaboration. Hmm. I'm not a competitive person. I tell people all the time, I didn't play sports, but I did play in symphonies. If you want to make good music, you have to be willing to pay attention to a conductor The great thing about the conductor is that he or she usually knows how to play every single instrument and really has a good understanding of what the bassoonist is going through and what the second violin is going through. And my gosh, the percussionist that only brings out the triangle every now and then. And I think this is a time for us to think of ourselves as as a symphony. The food writers, the, the critics, the book authors, the folks who are on television, like this is a, a moment for us to think about ourselves as collaborators rather than competitors. I would love to see folks think about how to root out some of the competition because there's so much room for everybody. If food is the art form we all participate in, then that means that there's room for you. And we have operated under a system that we have to crush our competitors. Um, doing air quotes again, as we have to crush our competitors, rather than think of them as um, supporters and allies. So, if we could take a little bit of that idea of the communal table, the idea of a punch bowl, or all of the things that are are communal about what we do, I think we would have an opportunity to tell more stories, get more books, get more shows. There's no reason why we can't have more. Yes, we are holding people accountable. But when I think holding people accountable is not necessarily destroying them, it's sometimes it's asking for more. And that to me is what repair can look like um, in, a, in a more honorable, equitable
2: fashion.
0: That's Jamila Robinson, food editor for the Philadelphia Inquirer and chair of the James Beard Journalism Awards Committee. You can find her on Twitter at Jamila Robinson. And that's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening. Stay tuned next week for the fourth and final part of this Food Media Awakening series, as we talk with a new generation of young food writers and chefs about their plans and where they see the industry heading. You can find bonus content from all our episodes on saltandspine.com. And remember, if you like hearing from your favorite authors on Salt and Spine, please click subscribe wherever you're listening. Of course, you can also join the Salt and Spine community and support our show at patreon.com saltandspine. Our show today was produced by me, Brian Hogan Stewart, and our producer, Madeline Forbes. Our kitchen correspondent is Sarah Varney. Our original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. Salt and Spine is typically recorded at the Civic Kitchen in San Francisco's Mission District. The Civic Kitchen now offers digital cooking classes. Find out more at CivicKitchenSF.com. Thanks, as always, to Gen Nurse, Chris Bonomo, and the Civic Kitchen team, to Edible San Francisco, and to Celia Sack at Omnivore Books. We'll be back next week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love.